0: MCTV. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you.
1: Thank you.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining me. My guest today is Lonnie Reed, who has served in the Connecticut House of Representatives and as House Chair of the Energy and Technology Committee and is now returning to documentary filmmaking and television production. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here, Lonnie. It's an honor and an opportunity because you've lived in two worlds. You've lived in the television world, you lived in the political world in Connecticut, and now back to the television world. Tell us, what was so interesting or boring about television that you (laughs) wanted to
1: change it, and how did you figure out which way to go? So actually, when I got into television, I had been in newspapers first. So I was a newspaper, old-school journalist, with the kind of old school standards that you keep digging, 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 and you, and you get the real story. And actually, I had worked for organizations that supported that. So if you needed to travel, they charted you a plane, <laughs> or a helicopter, or whatever. So you got to go where the story was. And um, and I eventually got into television, and I loved it, and it was great. And I actually started in a small market, of uh, the recommendation of some of my friends who were in, in uh, television, t- so I could learn to shoot edit, report, write, do all the jobs so that you had a real comfort level with the whole ecosystem of television. Did that, love that. And as television began in the 80s to kind of become a little bit more, I mean all journalism started to become a little bit more less journalistic and more business oriented in terms of Mm. sponsors driving, how you covered things, Mm. I just thought, you know, I really love doing long form. I love doing documentaries and I loved kind of really digging into things so I left to start my own company and to do documentaries which I did for a while and then um, I connected with a good friend of mine uh, Susan Iger you may know Uh, and we put a company together called Iger Reed and we did a lot of documentaries and television specials and that kind of thing and I loved it I liked working collaboratively with a whole team And I love being in the edit room, and I love writing, and so it kind of gave me all of those lanes to work in, and so that's how I ended up there.
2: How did you know it was enough? It was time to try something
1: else. You know, I think it's everybody, if they listen to their gut, can start feeling things, you know, like suddenly a job that you loved. (sighs) you got to go to work today, and you have to pay attention to those voices. Sometimes you can't change it. I mean, sometimes you have a family and you have all these responsibilities and that's the only thing that's paying the bills or you have to stay there long enough to get vested so you get, you know, your pensions and stuff. So I really appreciate that so many people don't have that flexibility, but I did. And I thought, and I'd save my money, I was very careful, always try to live within your means and put your money away because you need walk away money. And I always did that. My dad always taught me that, have walk away money. and so I just kept feeling that I don't wanna go, I don't wanna do this, I don't wanna do superficial stories. And um, one day I just quit. I had got a three-year contract I had signed only about eight months before, so this became a huge brouhaha. And I wasn't allowed to go with a competitor. Oh, you know, they yeah. had that exclusionary clause, so I couldn't do that, which I wouldn't have done anyhow. But um, I just said, I'm just gonna walk through it. I'm gonna walk through the drama and come out on the other side, which is, and I'm so glad I did. It really, it was a very good decision.
2: Because you had been over the bell curve, <laughs> you were the down <laughs> the bell curve. Yeah, of, of yeah, it wasn't.
1: It wasn't just either a bad day. Like I tell right. our kids sometimes, that's a bad day, you know. Yes. Because you had a really good day on Tuesday, so don't necessarily quit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, let them put some bad days together over time before you make the decision, but. Yeah, I mean, I had. I've been up and down and I learned a lot from all of that because I think oh, absolutely. you reach inside.
2: Yeah, how find did out. you do
1: that? You know, I just, it was so interesting. I, You know, when you talk to your girlfriends, yes. you know, so many of, of right. us have Which gone through move. some interesting things and um, I just really learned a lot from listening. You talk about listening a lot. Um, to friends who had done it and gone through it, and you know, some older friends. I had a couple of wonderful older friends uh, who were mentoring me, and I really got a lot of support for making the decision.
2: And did you take a rest period after that just to shed the experiences you had just left, or did immediately you sort out, well, here are the things I'm interested in, or whatever?
1: I took a little bit of a rest period, and I did things I had sort of postponed, domesticity. So I did some things I'd always wanted to do, like uh, redo an old house. So I bought a sawmill in Ridgefield, oh Connecticut, Good for and, you. Um, and and it was built in 1716, and it looked like nobody had dealt with it since then. And so I became a gardener, and um, I, you know, I did I redid a house and all of that, and I was really glad I did it. But then when I had finished that, I was also done. I was yes. <laughs> like, all right, we've done that. Let's move on. But it was great. It was great to sort of dig in and, and do things I hadn't done or hadn't had time to do. Because yes, all of these careers take nothing but time. I mean, you work long days and, and into the night. So you frequently kind of neglect other aspects of your, of your uh, life. So I was glad I did that. And I, so I took some time and I kind of wandered back Incrementally.
2: But what made you interested in running for office? Was there an event in town or is just a new experience? Let's go, you know, I know you were a speechwriter early on, so Mm -hmm. there may have been an interest there.
1: So, um, the man in my life tells me that I can't keep my mouth shut when (laughs) things are going on.
2: Maybe that's called words of wisdom.
1: I don't know, but it was, so I live at the shore in Connecticut. And um, there was a proposal to build a big floating natural gas plant to float out on Long Island Sound, which my little beach cottage was on. And um, it's going to be four football fields long mm. in Long Island Sound, which yeah. is a pond. It's not the ocean. And um, and then they were going to have a 60 mile pipeline. Oh. And then they were going to have these huge tankers come and deliver uh, natural gas, but it was natural gas that had been cooled, so it was, Yes. So then they had to put it on this, in this plant, and then they had to, um, warm it up and then send it through, pyre. you know, it was a huge yes. undertaking. Because I had worked in Washington for a U.S. Senator, uh, who chaired the Energy Committee, I thought, gosh, I remember years ago they were going to do one of these projects out off of California, and it never oh. happened. So I called, I, you know, I called people I knew in um, in environment and energy out in California. And I said, why didn't that ever happen? And somebody said to me, oh, there was this environmental impact statement. That oh, said, yeah. I said, well, where is it? They said, well, it happened before we computerized everything. So it's actually a hard copy, These the reports yeah. that came out. Well, where are they? I said, so I found this woman who was a, um, Worked in an environment in California and she got really into it. They want to build that out there? So she sent somebody to a warehouse and they found this document and they FedExed it to me. And I opened it up, you know, to find out why didn't they build this big floating uh, LNG plant in Long Island, or off of California. And the first thing was the fear of something called catastrophic mooring failure, (laughs) (laughs) which you, you are a, a
2: reporter. You, well, do, you know the, to the bottom say, of
1: things. My reporting skills have helped me so much in the political field. Because How? you just you dig, 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 dig until you get an answer that makes sense. You know, you don't take the easy answers. And so we were able to and and then because I had been a New York reporter, I had done something on a nuclear power plant out on Long Island called Shoreham. So I knew a lot of people on Long Island. They killed that plant. So I called them up. I said, you're okay with putting a floating LNG plant. They said, no, but nobody's listening to us. So I put together a bi-state New York, Connecticut rally at my cottage and my neighbor's cottages, both parties. You know, it was a bipartisan thing. And all these people showed up. They showed up in boats. They came over <laughs> in ferries they get from both states going, yes. we don't want this. And that began building and building, and so we were able to kill it eventually. It was uh, the, the governor of New York actually uh, had the last say on it, and he said, absolutely not. But it, So this became, wow. And then this became, you need to run for office, <laughs> which was never. I also had a little, I, I appeared on a talk show in New York, and I would interview politicians, a lot of governors, and Mayor Koch, and Governor yeah. Cuomo, the first Governor Cuomo. So, and uh, I used to always laugh at myself. I'm glad I'm in this chair and not in that chair. There's yeah. no way I'd ever want to be an elected official. But I, um, you know, they kept saying, no, you need to be My guy said, come on, come on. This is something you're always been interested in. So what? So you run, you lose, right. or you you're there for a while and then you leave, you know, just give it a shot. And so with the encouragement of friends and my family, I did it. And, um, and I did it for 10 years. And then again, I decided I'm gonna I have another you know, chapter. And so last election season, I decided not to run again.
2: But so talking about people, did you relate differently? Or how do you get successful in the television world, so to speak, uh, not the doing part, but the people part? And is that the same or different than Getting successful in the political state house,
1: you know, I think there's there's a real similarity, and those are skills that you learn. I love I love working with people, so I always thought when we're out on a story, I didn't look at the cameraman and sound man and the lighting. You know, all the people who came along is like, oh people I need to order around. I looked at them as part of the. We're all in this this together. And a lot of them had really good ideas. You know, hey, this is a better shot. So I always learned how to listen and to work together. And I love that. I love that collaborative aspect. And really, at its best, that's what you're doing when you're when you're representing people. You're listening to them and you're trying to figure out how to accomplish the good things, not all the things, but the good things together. And, uh, and so I was really able to do that. And of course communication, um, to really know how people are reacting. That's you know, what, what
2: works in communication to see how they're reacting?
1: Body language, facial expressions, they're saying something positive, but their body is going, uh, get me out of here, or no way. Um, kind of read the entire person when they're communicating with you. Mm. And that's really, it's important in everything you do. It's obviously something you do yeah. on a daily basis, but um, you know you realize that you're not necessarily, what people are, what's coming out of their mouth is not necessarily how they're really feeling. Really? Mm-hmm. In the political world, how interesting. Oh no, frequently and a lot of times, not only with colleagues, because well, everybody's angry but also with constituents, or they don't know what it is. You know, they have a feeling and they're not quite sure what, the, the why they are against something, but they just have a negative, and to let them talk it through, and to listen to them. And and, generous. And to help, um, to help them get there. You know, say, well what, so in other words, you mean, if it were a block away, you'd like it. Yeah. <laughs> so much of it is NIMBY, not in my backyard stuff. Right. And, uh, but just sort of listening that way. But so, if
2: uh, your constituents, as a group, wanted you to vote one way, but you felt it, it was better to vote the other way, how would you resolve that?
1: I just vote the way I feel is right, based on what I know, and I and I've done it. I mean, I've I've I'm a, I happen to be a Democrat, but I've I've fought with my own party over certain big issues, and I think also being going into politics older and having other experiences, yes. I feel a certain freedom. I mean, I've already had a successful career. Mm. Uh, I have a family that loves me, I have friends, and so, you know, so what's the matter with doing the right thing, you know, based on all of the due diligence that you've done?
2: And now that you're a different person and going back to television, how has that world changed?
1: Oh, I think it's very, very different. It's, it's different even the way, um, you know, I did one of my favorite uh, documentaries that I ever did was on Muhammad Ali. And uh, for TNT, and you know, it's called Muhammad Ali: The Whole Story. It actually is still available. <laughs> good. It was a really, really good. Uh, I think it was two hours, um, and I really let it breathe. You know, I let more of a narrative happen, and um, not only him talking, but his family talking, and and, nice. and you know, sort of integrating it. So you got a real sense of why he resonated worldwide beyond boxing. I mean, he he. Extended way beyond boxing. People who never watch boxing knew who he was and were captivated by him. And, uh, you know, so it's today, I think there's a lot more quick cutting. Like it's. Oh, it's surface. You know, it, they were just it the just, quick answer? keep it moving, keep it moving, you know. And oh. I think part of it has to do with how we live our lives now. We're so social media oriented and, and our thoughts don't have time to kind of settle and percolate. I mean, I do it myself. I stop myself sometimes. I'll say, okay, you're now, you've got an addiction thing going on with your cell phone, or you're not
2: thinking this through.
1: And I try to take myself away and kind of just sit with an idea or a thought. But I, you know, you can actually, the rhythms are different. And how... um,
2: Does that mean their depth of understanding is different?
1: No, I think sometimes, um, no, not necessarily. But it's just... Uh, a presentation that's very fast paced. You know, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, as opposed to, you know, ba boom, ooh, settle okay. for a second, let's think of that. Ba boom, ba boom, boom, whoa, let's, settle. you know, sort of the rhythms of how things go together. So,
2: where's the plus in that? Where's the minus?
1: You know, so much of it has to do with just getting used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Like, sort of like where are you going to come back? Are you going to come back? Right. Well, yeah. Or are you going to come back and battle the now, you know? Yeah. Or are you going to figure out a way to to get used to the now, but also put in you, you know, and put in a sense of perspective and kind of figure it out. So, so that's you know, what I, I run I an
2: of. exercise on myself because I too, you know, get a overly, yeah. you know, got to get the news, got to get the blah blah. Anyway, I make myself try and think policy, but then. Whatever side I'm on, I make myself (laughs) try to think from the opposite or several other opposites way of, if I were looking at this way, what would I see? If I was looking at that way, what would I see? And then I try to see what I could learn or not, but I think one of the adventures of life is being open, or at least respectfully open, to hear at another point of, don't have to agree, but your world might expand in some way or another, and you may have a different point of view. So right now, what I find it's lost. It's people. It's just like you were saying. It's faster, but when faster, it's a little less considered. Mm-hmm. You know, just get the ball back. <laughs> which I like in tennis yeah. but I don't like in conversation. <laughs> you know, I want someone to think about what I'm saying or, you know, do me the honor of at least pretend, not pretending, but you know, oh, you know, mm-hmm. but we're not in a period. Well, right you would
1: have made a really great old-school journalist. Yeah, thank that's what you well. do. I appreciate So much it. of it is listening to the other side and and exploring the other side.
2: Yes. Everything makes sense at some level, but it's is that the real level or it's like your mm-hmm. constituents, what they were saying, you know, in their bodies was different from what they were struggling or saying in the mouth. Now, when you were raising your children, did you raise them to be investigative reporters to make their case on why they did or did not want to do what you wanted them to do?
1: So I have a blended family, oh, okay. so I have inherited children and I'm also very close to my niece and nephew who tell me I'm their mom as well, so. Um, You know, I do. I mean, and I still do. I mean, you probably do this with your daughter, you know, on a daily basis. It's like, wait a minute, let's go deeper. Or, wait a minute, did you have a little, you know, contretemps with this person a little while ago and that never got resolved? Or, you know, you sort of just help them talk it through and settle down because that's the other thing that happens to all of us. We're in the middle of angst, you know. It's hard to settle down and try to back off a little bit and kind of look at it.
2: One of the great things I think about growing (laughs) up (laughs) <laughs> is that you have had all these experiences at least mm-hmm. once. So when it recycles, you just don't have that fresh anxiety to the startle level that you have, when, or at least I had, when it was coming to me face-on for the first time. But I, I also think that getting your daughters to look at it is, is a gift to them it, because it, it cycles back, I think, to self-understanding you
1: know. And well and I find too with our, because we have sons as well, um, you know women are different now and they have different expectations so our sons are, all of them are uh, fathers and uh, trying to kind of look at it from their wife's perspective um, you know, pitching in more or all of that, sort of understanding, well, you know, she has a career too, so she's gonna need a sense that everything's fine at home while she goes to Chicago to pursue, you know, uh, her career, and what she's working on there uh, for a business trip. And uh, so they actually have to talk it through too, because, you know, I think everybody's first reaction sometimes is like, well, I'm so busy and I'm so tired and why do I have to do this, you know? Let's settle it down, we're all a family, we're all a group, let's figure it out.
2: Oh, interesting. I think it's partly who you are as a person. I'm sort of solution-oriented, so when things blow, I'm asking myself, you know, what are the various solutions, you know, to this? It doesn't change the emotional, but then at least you have some idea of where this could go. Mm -hmm. And if anyone wanted to throw in something else, fine, but it's difficult. But I think men are raised differently, boys are raised differently. Very much so. You know, much more um, collaborative, much more helpful. (laughs) Uh, Some of my friends raised their sons to cook, (laughs) do the wash, I mean, all of it. And uh, I was glad they had it, I didn't have a son. What is the most, um, what do I want to say, the most, the thing you like best of who you've become?
1: I think. You know, I celebrate my failures as well as my successes. And as you said, you know, building on what you just said, you know, you just don't let it rip you up anymore. You know, you sort of you stand back a little and you kind of and I laugh a lot. I mean, I think that's key. Yes. To really find the humor in every situation and to go to that place or the irony place or you know, to kind of really get a sense of perspective better also. I think you know, I think I like that. I think the fact, I mean, I can still get whipped up. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm not, I don't walk around, you know, oh, yes, I'm, you know, I've got, no, there are days when I work. But I feel like I know how to go inside and find what I need, you know, or to reach out and find what I need uh, in ways that I think when you're younger, you don't necessarily.
2: How do, how do you, when you get thrown off balance, what works for you to restabilize or rebalance?
1: Running, <laughs> running, and? yeah, just do some serious exercise and kind of just let the physicality kind of take over, and then suddenly your brain settles down as well. So
2: interesting, yeah, interesting. Do you meditate?
1: You know, I've tried to meditate. I'm one of these people who, in yoga, when they finally say at the end, you know, well, and all my brain does is go, "Wait, you got to get here, you got to get there." I mean, I try, right. and you know, it's always been. Um, a goal but honestly <laughs> i have a hard time getting to that quiet place in yeah. my brain and not not that you know when i'm worried about doing things it's necessarily you know a, a negative thing but i i find that i i'm always sort of running in one way or the other
2: are you going back to documentary filmmaking
1: i'm talking about doing that i've also the governor of connecticut has just so uh, this hasn't even been publicized yet has just made me chairman of the board of something called the Connecticut Green Bank, which is a public-private partnership to bring investment money, private investment money, into deploying renewable energy, to fast-track renewable energy, which is gonna be billions and billions of dollars for our our globe to turn around and to leave fossil fuels and to you know have solar and wind and, and all of the things that we need so that we Um, You know, we're really dealing with the environment, and so I'm very excited about it. Uh, Where's the money coming from? (laughs) When I hear billions and billions, I'm like, hey, what did I miss here? So, you know, that's a perfect question because what happens is um, states and federal government set aside money, public money, to pay for these things. And so what happens is your wind developers come in and they go, well, we're going to need, you know, $8 billion to do this project of public money. And the Green Bank, and I think you know smart, strategic people go, wait a minute, not only is that way too much, but you're not sucking up all our public funding here. We need to work this through. And now, there are all kinds of investors out there who are socially conscientious, and they want to invest in things that are doing good work. And uh, I think a lot of the high, you know, CEOs have been talking to their children. <laughs> yeah, the children. Like, Daddy, when are you going to clean up the environment, Mommy? You know, and uh, and so it's a whole new area of inviting private investors to come into this process and help fund it. So you leverage public funds with private money. And we in Connecticut, we have the first green bank, and now they're happening all over the uh, the country, including in um, New York, New York. Uh, created a, a green bank, um, but you know, it, we've been able to leverage private money, so now we're 10 to one. So 10 oh, private investment dollars to one public dollar, that's, yeah. which is really the new equation we should be pursuing. But I read that you
2: were interested in bioscience. Is that Mm -hmm. something
1: you're focusing on as well? I am. I'm also, uh, there's something called BioCT, which is the Connecticut Bioscience Association. And so I've been very, very involved in sort of helping bring bioscience into Connecticut. And um, and because a lot of people have these startups, you know, interesting bioscience startups. And Connecticut's a great place for it. It's a small state. And we have, we brought, we stole a lot what of people. What is
2: bioscience in, in Connecticut's definition?
1: Um, well, it's, it's dealing in the medical field. Yes. But we also, bioscience and technology. So, um, what they call data informatics. Yes. Where, you know, a lot of scientists, in fact, the scientists will tell me, they do all this work to solve um, this disease. And along the way, their experiments have actually solved another disease that they yeah. don't know anything about. So you you have these data analytics people yeah. that take all that um, information that's been gathered and they analyze it and they go, wait a minute, you discovered a cure for lymphoma. Did you not know that? You know, oh, I was going for a rash. I was going <laughs> to discover. <laughs> I had no idea. So It's really important to kind of create these collaborative relationships again with technology and scientists. And also when scientists, one thing I've really pushed hard at in Connecticut is when they go for these uh, National Health Institute uh, grants, NIH grants, um, instead of competing with each other for the same grant, if you're both working on the same thing, go in together. And you have more chance of getting the grant and a better chance of actually resolving the issue. And it's a better use of public money, so. You know, trying to get, because scientists are very lab-oriented, and people, yes, you know, are. they're over their petri dishes, and, and to kind of get them to kind of think bigger, and to help them think bigger. That's sort of something that we've been doing a lot of.
2: Boy, that's a hard nut to crack, though. It's
1: very hard. <laughs> it's very hard. And knowing how to communicate. I'm yeah. always telling them, know your audience. You, oh. just, you just gave a speech about petri dish stuff. Right to a crowd of high schoolers. <laughs> right. And they want to know that they're you're going to cure their grandfather's parkinson's. They want to, you know they want to know what you're working on as opposed to you know this molecule did that to that molecule or whatever. No, tell them what you're going for. You know, put it in human terms. Thank you, Lonnie. So,
2: that's the answer to life. <laughs> really, <laughs> if you think about it. Get your information, find out a way to communicate, use humor, distress de- by exercise, and follow your passion to something. She's someone who likes to dig deep and know. That started her in journalism. Times changed, uh, things changed. You heard how it, it all happened, but she used, what do I want to say? She used energy, she has a lot of energy, so work on your energy, too. And And she brings with it a sense of the importance of trying to understand the other point of view, right? Don't have to agree with it, but at least let people know that you're listening to and watch the body language, watch the words, watch the face. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Be kind to someone you know and someone you don't know. And I'll see you again next week. Have a beautiful week. Thank you so very much. And thank you, Lonnie. Thank that you was so wonderful.
1: much. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com.
0: Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones The Spark. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you.